So uh, it's kind of funny that I get to be up here for this part of this series. I'm going to take my mask off if that's okay. I didn't realize I was wearing it. Um, <laughs> because we're in a series called The Christian Constitution. And I happen to be a history teacher. I didn't know if anyone would believe me, so I brought my jacket just in case. I happen to be a history teacher, and tomorrow we literally start learning about the American Constitution, kind of, I guess. Um, we're learning about the Articles of Confederation. For those of you that don't remember your history classes very well, um, I'm going to explain that to you because it was an epic failure. <laughs> um, so what our, what our founding fathers first decided to do was they wanted to make a, uh, they wanted to make a constitution for a government but they wanted that government to be pretty weak because they had just come out of a time when they had a very, very strict uh, government that controlled a lot of the aspects of their lives and they wanted more autonomy. And so the Articles of Confederation had some serious issues. The first part of it was the federal government um, could not tax their citizens. All that they could do is ask nicely for a donation. <laughs> Would that work? You know that it wouldn't, right? You know that that wouldn't work. Nobody is like, yeah, sure, government. Like, here, just take a little bit. And so the government was always broke. Second, the federal government could not actually, um, they couldn't raise an army. All that they could do was ask nicely for volunteers. And so they would politely ask for volunteers, and people would say, no, we just fought a war, and we won, and now we're done. We're retired. And so they could never raise an army. The third reason that it was a failure was uh, to pass a law, the federal government needed a 70% majority in their Congress. That required nine out of 13 states, because there were 13 at the time, to vote on it and approve it, which was a really difficult majority to get, and so they never passed any laws. And then finally, if they ever wanted to amend any laws that already were passed, it required a unanimous vote of 13 out of 13 to amend that law, which would never happen, right? That's, that's bananas to even try to get uh, 13 people to agree on anything, right? Like, it would be hard to choose what to watch on Netflix, let alone change a law with 13 people. And because of that, the government never accomplished anything under the Articles of Confederation. It was effectively ineffective. And that's why they had to end up writing another constitution. Good morning, Crossroads. Uh, my name is Nate. It was Mr. Shaw for that moment, but now I'm Nate again. And uh, I lead our youth group here at uh, Crossroads. It's a blast. I love leading our youth uh, so much. But I'm also really glad to be joining you this morning to talk about the Christian Constitution. When Jesus gave us the Christian Constitution, which we find in Matthew's chap Matthew chapters 5 through 7, uh, he did it as a teacher, which was really cool. He did it as a, uh, as a rabbi. He brought a group of people up on a, on a mountain. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he sat down, and he just began to teach uh, everybody. And what I love about the Christian constitution that Jesus gave us, and what makes it different than those articles of confederation, which I get to teach about tomorrow in class, is that Jesus gave it to us because he wanted to help us be effective. That was his goal. I mean, the very first line helps me in my life so much when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the reason that he says that is because he wants God, our Father in heaven, to be more significant in our lives. He wants us to recognize our need for him. 
That will help us every day. That will help us be more effective. And since week one of this series, we've been learning about those uh, and learning about those beatitudes. What we've been discussing and what we've been learning is how that we can be and live more like citizens of heaven, so that when our friends and family look at us, they see Jesus in us. That has been our goal. And that's what we've been reminding ourselves at the start of every single uh, message in this series, actually, in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And there is no law against these things. What is being written here is that you will know Christians, you will know citizens of heaven, you will know Jesus' disciples by their fruit, and you will see Jesus in them. And that's what this Christian constitution is all about, is how can we have that fruit in our lives? How can we be showing that we are citizens of heaven and living like that, rather than living like citizens of any earthly kingdom, whether it's a kingdom that you yourself have built, or whether it's a kingdom that has been built for you? We want to be recognized by the fruit that our lives produce. And that's why Jesus raised the bar for us near the end of Matthew chapter 5. Three weeks ago, Pastor Joe shared with us one of Jesus' amendments to the Constitution. You have heard it said, don't commit murder. But Jesus tells us the truth. Anybody who bears anger in his heart towards his brother has already murdered him. Wow. That was the bar being raised for citizens of heaven. And it didn't, didn't stop there either because two weeks ago, Pastor Shannon got up and she talked with us about another amendment. And this is one of those amendments that I don't think could have passed unanimously under the Articles of Confederation. I don't think that there would have been a 13 out of 13 vote among Jesus and his 12 disciples here because this is what Jesus said. He said, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But truly, I tell you the truth, anyone who looks at a young woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. I don't think the disciples all got together and they're like, yeah, this is like a good one. This is an easy one for us. Like, let's, let's make that one a law. But here we see Jesus raising the bar. And then finally, last week, Pastor Rob shared with us one final amendment, one other time where Jesus raised the bar for us, this time commanding us to love our enemies not just our family or our friends, not even just strangers, but those who outright persecute us, those who actually want us to do us harm, those who wish us harm in our lives. And he says, love them and pray for them. The bar has been raised again. And trust me, we still have a few weeks to go in this series, and Jesus is not done raising the bar for citizens of heaven. And when I think about, when I think about that verse, is that not a, that verse from Galatians, is that not a good way to recognize citizens of heaven by the fruit that they produce? I imagine so. I imagine that that is a wonderful way to recognize and see citizens of heaven. And that actually leads us to Matthew chapter 6, where we're going to be spending our time today. And it leads us to the next article in our Christian constitution. So this morning, what we're going to be talking about is malpractice. But to understand what I mean by that and to understand Matthew chapter 6, I actually want us to rewind a little bit back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 because I think that's going to give us some context for what we're going to be talking about this morning from Jesus himself. So if we could have Matthew 5, 13 through 16 on the screen, this will be important this morning. 
Jesus says here right after the Beatitudes, you are the salts of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then it goes on. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think that this verse from earlier on in Matthew is actually a really good place to start this morning because Christians are called to be a light to the entire world. And here's what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't tell his Christian followers, he doesn't say, hey, I want you to go and be salty and be lit, as we say in youth group, okay? That's not what he's seen 30. Before there even was a United States, before there was even talk about a revolution or anything like that, um, there was a man named John Winthrop, and he was leading a group of people that were known as Puritans over to this new world to start a colony. They would be the Massachusetts Bay Colony, and that would eventually create what is known today as Massachusetts. And while on his ship, uh, the Arbella is what it was called, this preacher, um, John Winthrop, preached a sermon titled, A Model of Christian Charity. If you've taken AP history, this is probably something that you've read excerpts of before. It was something that he had written back in his home of Southampton, and in this sermon, he stated something to his group known as Congregationalists that was pretty big. He informed them that when they arrived in this new world, they would be a city on a hill. Okay, this is him right here, yeah. That they would be a city on a hill, and that they would be a model to all other Christians, to all other people in general, especially those who weren't Christians at all, of how to live, of right living. He said that they would be the example. They would be a beacon, okay? This actually led the Puritans, that was the name that they would be given, to an extremely public and an extremely devout way of living, as they were told this. This became their framework for how that they would live their lives. Um, they needed to live as what they called visible saints. Otherwise, their salvation would be questioned by others. Okay? They were called Puritans by others because they lived a pure life, but this actually became a really big problem for them as well. Piety was of the utmost import. Church attendance in this community became tracked and required for participation in any form of government at all. To truly appear connected to God, a public or religious moment or some sort of conversion experience that other people witnessed was actually ex uh, expected of you by others. Otherwise, it was like, mm, I don't know if they actually know God. I don't know if they are actually saved because I haven't witnessed something visibly from them. They are not visible saints. Inward grace was not good enough in the Massachusetts Bay Colony any longer. An idea that was truly good, this idea that they're going to be a city on a hill, that they're going to be a beacon to others, it was very good, but it had become twisted. And everything was about performance. In fact, those who questioned this way of life at all and those who taught against it were expelled from the colony. Anne Hutchinson and Roger Williams, uh, probably chief among them, they were preachers that said, hey, inward grace is enough. It's about you and God. It's not about performing for any others. They were called heretics and false teachers, and they were expelled. 
Both were banished in different trials, and they actually founded Providence, which would become Rhode Island, a place where it was all about inward grace and where religious tolerance was practiced. That story about John Winthrop and that story about the sermon, a model of Christian charity, makes me wonder this. I wonder if this group had focused a little bit less on only Matthew chapter 5, and if they had read Matthew chapter 6, I wonder if maybe their lives and their legacy would have been a little bit different. Because in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus sits, continues sitting down and teaching, and he says some really important things. So we'll start in verse 1, and we're going to read through it together. In verse 1, Jesus says this, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. That's how he starts it off. And when he goes on, he explains what he means by this. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites in the synagogues do and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jesus says here, look, you don't need to do it publicly because there's only one person whose opinion matters. There's only one person that you need to be proud, that you want to be proud of you, and he sees what is done in secret. There's no need to do it publicly. But he's still not done. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they are seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep babbling on like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ever ask Him. Jesus goes on to say, look, when you pray, it's not about you performing in front of others. It's a connection between you and your Father in heaven. He's the only one that you need to hear you. So when you pray in secret, it's okay. He'll know what you are saying. And you don't have to continue on in this train to be heard by others because he already knows what you need before you ask it. He just wants you to ask him because he likes you. And then he teaches them how to pray. For your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Um... Sorry, I lost my place. Deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And here, one last section. 
When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. He knows when you're fasting, so everybody else does not need to know. It is between you and him. And look, I know that this passage sounds pretty archaic. We don't do a lot of these things anymore. We don't disfigure our faces if we're fasting. When we tithe on push pay, we don't blow a trumpet to inform everybody else that we're doing it. Like, hey guys, I hopped on the app, and then, you know, blow your trumpet, okay? But here's what I want you to think about. That model of Christian charity message that was preached by John Winthrop on his ship when they were coming over to the Americas, it was not forgotten once John Winthrop died. In fact, it became a big part of American culture pretty much forever. In fact, it was the core central part, I guess, um, of Ronald Reagan's farewell address during the last night that he ever addressed the American people as president. He said, we have and we always will be a city on a hill. The United States has and always will be. And just like that desire to be a city on a hill continued from John Winthrop all the way to President Reagan, the desire to perform our Christianity continues today. It started with the Pharisees at the time that Jesus was teaching it continued on maybe to the Puritans in the 1600s in the United States, but that desire to perform righteousness still exists today in me. And it might exist in you also. If I'm not careful, I work extremely hard to be a visible saint for all of you. I struggle all the time with maintaining my reputation, which is so important to me. I want everyone I meet to like me. I want them to be proud of me really bad, and I love it when they say it. In fact, right now, in front of you, I'm fighting it. That's why so much of my messages are written out word for word, because I hate being embarrassed, and I would be so upset if I ever made a mistake publicly in front of all of you here, and then it was recorded forever online. <laughs> that wasn't a joke, but it became one. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but you're not helping by it. You're not helping. <laughs> While I might not announce to all of you when I tithe in church, every time I ever assist a youth student or a student at my school with something, I love to tell the story because I love helping and I love being needed. While I might not publicly suffer while I'm fasting, I do internally, but while I might not publicly suffer, I still, I have mission trips that I went on in middle school that I still love to tell stories about because I'm like, isn't it cool that I was serving God in middle school? Isn't that awesome? Okay. It makes me need to question my motives very often whenever I do anything. Am I giving glory to God or am I giving clout to Nate? Is my audience my father in heaven right now or is it you? And you might experience this as well sometimes. Do you do the right thing because it's the right thing? Do you do what Jesus asks you to do for him? 
or are you performing your righteousness in the sight of others? Is your audience comprised of your coworkers? Is your audience made up of your fellow church congregation? Is your audience your neighborhood, or is it even your family? Our Father in Heaven should be the only voice that matters. Um, I, uh, my school has a football team, and they just had their last home game of the season uh, on Friday. And I was there recording fouls, so like I would record the penalties. So I get to be on the field with the refs and the players and stuff. And while I was doing that, the game was intense. Like it came down to the wire. The last two minutes were extremely dramatic and emotional. And I'm still not quite over it, I don't think. But on, during one of the most important drives of the game at the end, a player was subbed out, and he got subbed out, and he was extremely, extremely upset. And he made his way over to the stands, um, away from the team, which you, if you're an athlete, you know you don't do that, uh, to talk to some of the former players uh, that played on the team last year but have since graduated. And he was venting, and he was upset, and he was kind of talking to them. And one of the team dads came up to him and spoke some wisdom into his life that feels very pertinent now. It wasn't his dad, but one of the team dads approached, and he told him this. He said, you need to go stand by your coach immediately. Your coach is the only voice that matters. You've got 48 minutes of football, and nobody here in the stands matters. Your friends don't matter. Your parents don't matter. Their opinions don't matter. Their advice doesn't matter. There was a lot of other dads that were, like, coaching during the game, you know, and his former players and stuff. You've been to high school sports. You get it. He says, you've got 48 minutes where your coach should be the only voice in your ear. And for 48 minutes, this high school junior should have only had an audience of one. He's not performing for the people in the stands. He's not performing for his friends. He's not performing for the other dads. He's got one coach who's telling him what to do, and he's got one coach that he needs to be proud of him. Because if he's doing his job and he's doing it to the best of his abilities then he's already won. I have to tell, I, I mean, I don't coach high school football. I coach middle school girls basketball, but we have to tell them a lot, that a lot as well because their parents get real loud during those games and they tell them exactly what to do. Shoot the ball, shoot the ball, shoot the ball. Like, no, we don't want any 13-year-old girl taking threes, okay? They're not gonna make them. <laughs> Stop telling her to shoot the ball. I know she's good. She's good for being 13, but she can't make a three-point shot. You should only listen to coach, okay? And that's us in our lives. It's easy to say it. It's easy to say it now up here with the microphone, with it written in front of me. It's easy to say it when I'm reading the verses on the screen, but it's so much harder to put into practice. When I look internally and I look at me, I think about this comedian that I like, actually. In one of his specials, he talks about his, something that his wife says about him. She says that every time they go out and they're walking around, she says that walking around with him is like walking around with somebody who's running for mayor of nothing, okay? Because he needs everybody to like him so much. And this can be me and, and maybe you also. The thought of living for an audience of one can be so hard that it makes me wish that I could just choose my favorite parts of Matthew chapters 5 through 7 and leave the rest. Loving my enemies? Yeah, I'm so down for that. That's not really a struggle for me. I, I love the idea of, of like loving people that don't like me. Okay, that's, that's not too hard. Being salt and light, great. What an honor that God made me salt and light. Thank you, Jesus, for that. And then I keep reading, I'm like, ooh, adultery? 
that's kind of hard. There's some cuties out there, right? Like, like that's a little bit harder for me. I don't, know if, I don't know if that one is easier for me. And then I look at not telling the left hand what the right hand is doing. And I'm like, that's not going to help my reputation at all if nobody knows about it. If nobody knows, then my reputation is static. And so I want to leave those behind that I don't like, and I want to just hold on to the parts of Jesus that are really fun and easy. Humility can be really, really tough. We actually talked about it recently in a youth series uh, that went along with this one. While we've been doing this series, we've been doing a series at youth group called Dual Citizenship. And in Dual Citizenship, we talk about kingdom words. We talk about how there are attributes in God's kingdom that are... um, that are really important, but then we look at our American kingdom or the kingdoms that we have built up in our own lives, and they're just not seen as important. Things like meekness, dependence, forgiveness, selflessness, and there was one more, honor. We looked at those five, and we were like, oh, like those are really important to God, but maybe they're not super important in our lives today in the United States. We don't treasure those here the same way that God does. And the sixth one of those was humility. We have to choose humility every single day of our lives because it is not natural. It is not something that just comes easily, okay? It is a decision that has to be made. And humility requires this. It requires kneeling before God. And then we wait for him to raise us up, just as Peter writes. God will raise you up in due time. A big ethic of God's new kingdom that he's creating on this earth is humility. And citizens in this new kingdom don't do things to be seen, but they do everything as to him who is unseen. Our pride and our feelings do often get hurt when we don't get recognized, when we don't get rewarded, when we don't get noticed or thanked for the things that we are doing right. We can do the right thing, but we can make the right thing wrong if our motives are impure. You've done the right thing, but now it's wrong because you had the wrong motives. We need to be aware of if we are seeking after man's approval more than God's approval. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul writes this, Work willingly at whatever you do, as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will give you an inheritance as your reward, and that the master that you are serving is Christ. Are you serving you as your own master, or are you serving your unseen master that is Christ? Do everything as unto him. If you remember nothing else this morning, I hope that you'll remember this. Although Christians are to be seen doing good works, they must not do good works to be seen. Although Christians are to be seen doing good works, they must not do their good works to be seen. Jesus does want us to be seen doing good works. That is why Paul writes, you will know Christians by their fruit. That is why Jesus said, you are salt and you are light, because he does want us to be seen doing good works. That's why in John, Jesus says this, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples 
if you have love for one another. He wants us to be identified as Christians. He wants it to be obvious when we're seeing like, oh yeah, they love Jesus. Look at the way that they are living. But if we are doing those good works to be seen, if we are doing those good works to get something out of it, then our Father in heaven has nothing for us. He's got nothing for us. There is no reward in heaven for that. We have an audience of one, so it's time to check our motives. Are we motivated by praise, admiration, attention, affirmation, monetary reward? Is that what we are motivated by? Or is it enough to make our Father in heaven proud? If nobody ever knows what you did, was it still worth it? Would you do it again if nobody found out? Would you do that same thing again? Our audience has the capacity now to be larger than it's ever been in the history of the world. Things like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and TikTok, because those exist, we are always performing for somebody. There's always an audience now, and that audience can be huge. But we cannot let it become our righteousness that is being performed. Every good deed does not need an Instagram story. And every mission trip doesn't need a Facebook album. And every act of kindness doesn't need to be shouted out in your group chat. And every prayer request, this one's kind of weirdly specific, but I know that I've done it. Um, every prayer request doesn't need to be brought up in your small group or Bible study so you can show that somebody trusts you really well with it. Like, hey, I've got this thing that somebody shared with me and I want to share it. And I'm sharing it not because I actually want to pray for them, but because I want you to know that I'm important to this person. Uh, I lost my place because I was explaining that. So please believe me, I've done most of these things. The only reason that I haven't done the Instagram or the Facebook ones is because I don't have social media. But the reason that I don't have social media, in addition to sucking up too much of my time, I cannot maintain a social media presence without performing for you. My identity becomes so wrapped up in the social internet's perception of me that I can't help but be performing, and I know I'll perform my righteousness. So do not let your identity as a child of the king be wrapped up in your audience's performance of you, in their perception of you. You have an audience of one. Your father who is unseen will reward you. He sees your giving, he hears your prayers, and he knows your needs before you know your needs. So let him take care of you. Yes, you are to be seen doing good works, but you must not do good works to be seen. And that's quite the challenge. Citizens of heaven do everything as unto the Lord. They humble themselves, and they need only the approval of their Father in heaven. So here's our challenge this week. Here's what we're going to do, myself included, and I hope you'll join me in this. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go, and we're going to pray not in public, but in secret. If you need to go into your room, your bathroom, your closet, wherever it is, I'm going to go into my closet and I'm going to pray, okay? We're going to close the door and we're going to pray in secret and we're going to ask God to search our hearts for anywhere where we are motivated by performance. That's what we're going to look for. And we're going to do so kneeling and humbling ourselves before our God because we do everything for Him and we will let Him be our audience at work, are we motivated to perform for others? At home, 
on our sports team, in our band. I don't know. I'm trying to think of different circles that you might run in, right? Wherever you are, where are you motivated by others' perception of you? Where are you motivated to perform your righteousness? And then you're going to ask God to help you with that. You're going to give it to him, and you're going to practice playing the game where only his voice matters and him alone. So I want to share this with you because I've been thinking about this a lot in preparation for this. I've been asking myself, how will I deal with this appetite that I have for praise and affirmation? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to starve it. I'm going to starve it, and I'm not going to feed that appetite for praise and affirmation, but I need your help. When I leave this stage, I don't want you to say thank you. I don't want you to clap. I don't want you to come up and tell me that this message spoke to you because I only performed for one person today, and that was God. If it did speak to you, if it was good, if you did need to hear it this morning, tell him because all of the glory is for him, and you'll be giving him glory by thanking him for it and by telling him. So I'm going to close in prayer, and then it will be done, and there will be no claps. And <laughs> I, I have to tell the youth group, because they're so very supportive. They're too supportive. Um, and then Alan will come up, and he will dismiss us. Our Father, who art in heaven, I learned the Lutheran way, hallowed be thy name. <laughs> Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. And give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Amen.